Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Hey, folks. Dave Harvey here on yet another spectacular spring day here in Tallahassee, and I want to thank you for joining us on our next edition of the Am I Called podcast. There simply isn't enough time to cover the entire biography of our next guest, nor would he, by the way, want us to. But, but today I'm joined here in the studio, that is through the marvels of Skype, with uh, Sam Storms. Sam refers to himself as a Calvinist, charismatic, credo-baptistic, complementarian, Christian hedonist. Man, that's a lot of content packed into the letter C, Sam. Um, but Sam is also a prolific author who's published, oh my, a number of books, a number of articles on wide-ranging topics, including the roles of men and women and apologetics, open theism, a number of different devotional works, and, and of course, the subject that we're going to target today, which is the subject of continuationism, which is what it means to be a biblical charismatic. So, Sam, though, what you need to know, what our listeners would want to know is Sam is no mere academic. Sam also serves as the lead pastor for preaching and vision at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City. City. So, Sam, it was good to see you at Gospel Coalition, and it's great to have you join us today. Well, it's good to be with you. I'm looking forward to this. Sam, apart from wanting men to think biblically about the subject of calling, we also we also really appreciate, we love to hear stories about how God moved on men to preach the gospel. And if so, if you wouldn't mind, maybe you could just take a few minutes and, and share your story. Sure. Um, well, I was blessed uh, to have been raised in a Christian home. My mother and father were both wonderful believers. They're the ones that really led me to the Lord. Uh, just have one sister. She's a Christian as well. So uh, I know that uh, we hear so much today about dysfunctional families. Well, God was very good to me. I had one of the functional families <laughs> mm. that uh, they they actually do exist, and I was blessed to have one. So That's I was raised in uh, an environment in which um, uh, the local church was central to our existence, and scriptures were authoritative in every way. Um, but the first uh, sense that I had that I that I really seriously thought God was calling me into full time ministry. I can remember it vividly. I was 10 years old. Um, we were living in Midland, Texas at the time. Uh, it was a Sunday evening service at First Baptist Church uh, where we had, uh, I was raised Southern Baptist and we were, uh, had recently joined that church and it was the close of the service and they, you know, back in those days, I don't know if they still do it, Southern Baptist closed with a kind of a benedictory, benediction in song and I can still remember the song and the words of it. And in the midst of that, uh, and again, this this is the part where it gets a little difficult to explain to people. Uh, I sensed the Lord's presence in a very powerful way, and sensed that He was calling me to full time ministry. Hmm. Um, and uh, people say, "Well, what do you mean you sensed it?" And I, I, I mean, my answer is, I don't know. I don't know how to explain that. Uh, it almost has you. You have to have had it yourself to know what I'm talking about. But I remember going home that night and sharing it with my parents and I've never looked back. So that, that night was a distinct call 
on my life. Uh, I never wavered from it. Um, Was the preacher talking about uh, no, men here who might be called anything. ministry? No? I don't recall anything. He may have. I just simply do not re- remember that. I just remember a very intense time of prayer on my part. And then as we were singing, um, just some of the words from that song, just the Lord impressed them on my heart. And, uh, you know, I continued to pray about it again. Remember I was only 10, but still I had a, had a pretty vivid awareness of the Lord, Mm. um, uh, directing me in that way. And then over the years, uh, just the way it was confirmed, uh, was through various mentors that I had spiritually. Um, when I was at the University of Oklahoma, I had a, a layman from Oklahoma City that used to come down and lead a Bible study, and he encouraged me and taught me and was and modeled for me Christian ministry. And then when I was at seminary, um, my primary professor was S. Lewis Johnson, and he uh, took me under his wing and trained me and prayed for me and uh, so I, I had some incredible mentors who continued to direct me in the way that I sensed that the Lord had called. Sam, do you ever encounter men who come to you and say, um, you know, I, I feel a vague sense of calling, but I haven't had anything similar to the kind of experience you're describing where, you know, there was a distinct impression from the Spirit of God beckoning me forward. You know, what should I do with that? Do you ever have guys come to you? Sure. With, and and what do you say to them? Well, I tell them to read your book for one thing. <laughs> How's that for a, an unsolicited advertisement? Oh, I like it. Uh, yeah. Seriously, that's what I do. I, I had lunch with a young man recently, just graduated from college, and it's kind of uncertain about what to do, and I had him read your book. But uh, I, don't, I don't think it's necessary that everybody have the same sort of experience I did. I don't think that God has cookie cutter calling where everybody is um, drawn or led or impressed in, the, in, in precisely the same way. I think God adapts his, um, his approach to us um, according to, to, to the needs and the personalities and the situation of each individual. So uh, if somebody is sensing a call, maybe, and I, and I would definitely want to talk to them about their desire. I want to say, what do you really sense inwardly that this is something you want to do? And in my case, um, I, I I had to say, man, if I don't do this, I'm going to be the most miserable person on the face of the earth. I I never could conceive of myself doing anything else. It just never remotely entered into my frame of thinking. Uh, and so I want to I want to talk to a young man about his desires. I would say, what. What do you really want to do? What energizes you? What wake? What puts the fire of God in your heart? And if it's something other than ministry and preaching, then you probably need to do something other than ministry and preaching. Because if you if you pursue this uh, uh, this line of work and ministry uh, under pressure from family or out of guilt because uh, you think that maybe by doing it you'll uh, induce God to love you more or something along those lines. It's, it, it, you're going to not only make yourself miserable, you're going to make the people you minister to miserable. So um, certainly I would, I would want to talk to them about their desire. I, I wouldn't hold forth my experience as a, as some sort of a model. Mm, good. Um, uh, I, I think, again, I think God adapts to each individual in accordance with their needs and their situation and circumstances in life. So 
you know, talk about a lot of things, as you know, Tom, we'll talk about their gifting. I said, are you, have, have you seen any success thus far? And when you've tried to communicate the word of God and you've tried to, to, to shepherd and encourage people, uh, have, has it been confirmed by people that know and love you? Um, so there are a lot of factors that enter into that. Yeah. My, mine was, um, unmistakable, but again, it was mine. I wouldn't say it has to be yours or anybody else's. Well, Sam, talking about those kind of subjective impressions uh, creates, a, uh, I think, an adequate bridge to, to cross over into just this whole arena of what it means to be a continuationist. So let me just ask you a, a general question first. What, what is a continuationist? Yeah, a continuationist, uh, given the, the, the nature of that word itself, is a person who believes that the gifts of the Holy Spirit described in the New Testament, we're talking here about um, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, uh, Romans 12, um, Ephesians 4, uh, those spiritual gifts that we see oftentimes manifested in the book of Acts and elsewhere continue in the life of the church. Now, it doesn't mean that they are always um, as visible or tangible or prevalent um, at every stage in church history, because we know that there are seasons in the life of the church when uh, the the exercise of those gifts and and the ministry of just lay folk was suppressed. Uh, in fact, that lasted oftentimes for centuries. There are ebbs and flows, but um, continuation is someone who says, I don't see anything in scripture that leads me to believe that God meant those gifts for a short season in the life of the church, particularly in the first century. So I see no evidence in God's word that they were temporary, um, and so uh, I believe they continue, and therefore, if they uh, continue, I need to take very seriously 1 Corinthians 14.1, where Paul encourages us to pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So, to my way of thinking, if you believe these gifts continue and you're not earnestly seeking them, you're in sin. That that sounds kind of harsh, but First uh, Corinthians fourteen one isn't uh, advice; it's a command, and I don't see it being restricted to any one or group, small group of individuals at any particular time. I think it's a it's a responsibility for all believers. Yeah, so that's what a continuationist is, and, and that brings up a good point, Sam, because there. I don't know if you have this perspective as well, but there appears to be a growing number of pastors who would profess profess being continuationists, at least in their theology, yet functionally, they're, they're really not there. They're functionally cessationists. And, yes. uh, and, and so, you know, that seems to be an emerging trend. And, I'm, you know, I'm wondering, why do you think that is? Oh, my. Um, I think there are a number of reasons. Um, you know, speaking from my own experience, even after I embraced this truth as something that I believe that was theologically consistent with God's word, I was still hesitant and reluctant at times to, uh, to go forward. And a lot of it had to do with fear. Just the, the, I, just be perfectly honest, it was the fear of man. Um, I was afraid of incurring the ridicule uh, and rejection of people whose respect I craved. Uh, I was fearful of what felt unfamiliar to me. Uh, I hadn't seen it 
um, operate very often. And when I did see it, sometimes it wasn't done well. And so there was this, I think, self-protection uh, that said, you know, I want to stay safe. I want to, I want to keep things in under control. Uh, I don't want to open the door to that would uh, allow people to um, fall into a kind of a fanaticism that would bring reproach on the gospel or reproach on me personally. So I think a lot of it um, was was simply fear, and I think that's the case with a lot of pastors today who say, "Yeah, I, I have to concede that the Word of God doesn't teach cessationism." It, teaches that these things are meant by God for the life of the church, even today. But a lot of them will say to me, they say, Sam, the, the bottom line is, I just don't know how to do it. Um, I, I see it in scripture, but I don't know how to do it. And when I look for examples of how to do it, they're all bad ones. Yeah, there aren't and, the models. And the problem is, is that is that they look to television. They look to some TV evangelist who's, who's manipulative and mercenary and um, really isn't Christ-centered and seeks experiences uh, as an end in themselves, unrelated to truth, and it terrifies them. And that terror leads to paralysis. Um, so um, I, I think that is to a large extent the reason for it. And, and I think also um, they haven't perhaps uh, studied it as thoroughly as they should. Uh, I don't. I don't think any pastor or Christian leader uh, should ever seek to um, move in the, in the power of the Spirit and God in these, re, in these respects until they really do understand what the Word of God says. and They understand the principles according to which gifts operate, and they understand uh, the biblical parameters uh, that God has established for us and what the purpose of the gifts would be. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of pressure on pastors to maintain order and sophistication and decorum and a lot of pressure to make sure that people keep coming back and that you don't scare them away. And I think sometimes that leads pastors to say, well, as much as I might like to have these things happen, um, uh, I gotta, I've got I've to keep this church above water financially and in, and in terms of the number of people that come in on a Sunday. Yeah. Uh, so in some uh, ways it's it's an encouraging development because there's more and more pastors in the reform community that are profess professing this continuationism but uh but it seems and it seems like in some ways the dividing line has changed. The dividing line used to be over when one received the Holy Spirit, you know, when did his presence and power begin to reside in the believer and and there just seems to be nowadays growing agreement that that happens in conversion. So the dividing line now is is with regard to the pursuit of the activity of the spirit. You know, between that that division between professing continuationism and functional continuationism, yeah. and it seems to lie in the pursuit of it the, the, with the passages you just mentioned from First Corinthians yeah, let me, fourteen. Let me. Let me capitalize on that word pursuit, if I can interrupt you. That is really important. I'm glad you brought that up, because I think this is one reason why a lot of theological continuationists don't see the work of the Spirit in their life or the church, is because, uh, as you described me at the beginning, I am a Calvinist. I am reformed in my theology, so I have a high view of the sovereignty of God, and a lot of these re reformed or Calvinistic uh, pastors 
have the idea in their mind because of their view of God's sovereignty, they basically say, look, if this, if this is something God wants to occur in our church, he'll make it happen without my help. Um, I just need to, uh, to be open to it and not resist it if it comes, but um, it somehow feels to them a violation of their belief in the sovereignty of God if they seek and pray and pursue. And they need to understand, as I had to come to learn, that, um, you know, the, just the basic fundamentals of prayer that we read about in Matthew's gospel is the person who repetitively and continually seeks and keeps on knocking and keeps on asking that the door is opened and God answers. Um, and, you know, people say, well, yeah, I, I prayed for these things. And, I, and I'm going to say, uh, how often uh, was it combined with fasting? Was it over a sustained season of time? Or is it the, well, yeah, you know, I, I tagged on a little appendix to my prayers the other day. I said, Lord, if you want to do this, you certainly have my permission. And I, I think sometimes reformed uh, Calvinistic types are afraid of crossing a line and uh, they don't want to be guilty of nagging God. They don't want to be uh, guilty of creating in their own power something that turns out to be artificial. And so they they allow that to paralyze themselves and they don't seriously pray, seriously study, um, create opportunities where the spirit can move more freely, um, make it safe in the life of the church where people can step out and take a risk uh, in faith here and there. Yeah, I read so where- I, I, th I think that combines to make this a real problem for some people. I was just, yeah, I agree. And I was just gonna say that I read where uh, one theologian said that you know, modern Christians are content to be Trinitarian in belief and binitarian in practice. And, you know, there's a sense that what the continuationist is calling the church to do is to be is to be Trinitarian in, in not only belief, but in, in practice as well. Yes. So, Sam, you've talked a little bit about what that looks like for uh, for the believer, what that looks like in one's life. That You know, you're praying, you're crying out to God. You might be fasting. Let, let's talk a little bit about what that might look like uh, in the church. You know, what what does it look like to be truly continuationist if you're a pastor leading a church or you're trying to lead a church into that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, one of the things I would want to say right up front is you, you, pastors need to put out of their thinking this all or nothing mentality. And what I mean by that is, um, they have this idea in their heads that if they open the door and, and, and passionately pursue and pray for the work of the Spirit, that it's going to mean that anything goes. And that terrifies them, and it should, because anything doesn't go, because the Word of God uh, is very clear about what is legitimate and what isn't. But then the alternative to that is, um, I'm so terrified of anything goes that I'm going to legislate nothing is allowed. So it's either this, we will allow anything and everything, and it gets chaotic, fanatical, and extreme, or we legislate uh, in such a way that nothing is permitted. And we've got these two extremes. And I think pastors have to come to the point where they say, Lord, I want everything that you want to do in this church, and I will do everything within the power you've given me to facilitate that. But at the same time, I'm going to be 
biblical in the way I pastor it. I'm going to be careful and discerning, um, and we're not going to promote fanaticism as an end in itself. So I would just encourage pastors, first of all, you have to teach on this. Uh, Your people aren't going to be open or hungry for things that they think um, are, you're going to denounce if it should ever occur. You have to teach on it consistently. You have to train people. Uh, we have regular uh, quarterly prayer training sessions at our church. And then on Sunday mornings, we have uh, probably 15 or 20 people at the front of the auditorium after every service to pray for whatever needs the people may have. Um, we Uh, Try to model it in a biblical way. Um, Again, we don't have an anything goes policy. That's a a recipe for disaster. Um, But people know that we are uh, open to whatever we think that the Spirit of God might be doing. So again, leaders have to model this in their own lives. They have to show a passion for it. They have to teach it. They have to train their people. They have to provide good material for them to read. Um, you know, it's very, it's very easy. I, I've just, I don't know if you've noticed this. I've, I've seen it that, that, um, it's almost as if we default to one side of the road or the other. We're in either the bar ditch on the left or the bar ditch on the right. And it's either I'm cynical and skeptical on one side or I'm gullible on the other. And I don't think the Bible calls for either of those. I don't think God wants us to be cynical and skeptical and and, um, and, and not willing to trust and believe. But he also doesn't want, doesn't want us to be gullible and naive. He wants us to be discerning and biblical. So those are just some of the words of exhortation I would give to pastors. And, you know, I'd say, look, you have to be willing to live with a little bit of mess. Yeah. Uh, there's just simply the fact of the matter is when the spirit comes in power, he comes to broken, weak, sinful people, and we're going to mess up. And some people are immature, and they don't know how to, to handle the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we see that in Corinth. You know, the problem in first century Corinth wasn't that they lacked the Holy Spirit. The problem was they were an immature people who had too much of him, and they didn't know how to properly um, respond. And and uh, so, but we just have to recognize, look, there are going to be some messes, but Let's not freak out. Let's just say, okay, something got a little haywire here and it, it made everybody feel nervous. Let's just stop and think about it. Let's talk about it from a biblical point of view and uh, just kind of demystify the whole experience and, and turn it into a learning opportunity. Yeah, and I think, I think pastors, um, you know, one of the commendable and noble impulses they have is they want to protect the integrity of the canon. They want to protect the authority of scripture and can feel at times as if opening the door to charismatic charismatic gifts um, is going to undermine the the use of scripture and the authority of scripture in the church prophecy, for instance. You know, um, right. thinking that prophecies about determining direction for the church or giving people decisive words that can ultimately replace the word of God in their life. And so I, in many ways, it goes back to the importance of teaching and training and placing the gifts in their, in their proper place and their proper priority underneath the authority of Scripture. Absolutely. And in fact, um, if you had asked me, and as people often do, so they say, Sam, what is the single greatest obstacle or 
maybe instead of obstacle, let's say this, the single greatest argument that people bring to bear against the operation of all these gifts, and you just mentioned it, it is their fear that it will undermine the finality and the sufficiency of the biblical canon. And my response to that is, you know, I understand that. And and have there been people who have gone too far and have um, uh, perhaps elevated prophetic ministry above the authority of the Bible? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, but that doesn't mean we should uh, quench the Holy Spirit and despise prophecies. Let's remember Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, um, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but hold fast to what is good, reject what is bad. So even the church at Thessalonica had most likely seen some real abuse. Maybe people were uh, utilizing prophecy to try to control other people's lives. And the natural human tendency is to say, all right, enough of that. If that's what's going to happen, we're going to rule this out altogether. And Paul's saying, no, don't do that. Don't quench the spirit by despising prophetic utterances, but rather be discerning. Um, so, yeah, I've uh, and 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 one other thing I would just remind people, you know, they say, um, you know, that prophetic revelation, for example, prophecy or word of knowledge or miracles or tongues or whatever, um, will somehow undermine the finality and sufficiency of the canon. And my response is, where do you think we get the idea? that we should have prophecy and tongues and words of knowledge. It's from, mm -hmm. the, from canon. the canon. It's yeah. the Bible itself that tells us that we should pursue these gifts. So the Bible is not undermining its own authority. It's from scripture that we are exhorted to pursue these things. Yeah, I've been in meetings where, uh, you know, a prophetic word was given, uh, given, under the government of the elders, under the evaluation of Scripture, and it has, you know, it has elevated the experience of worship, and I, and I treasure that. Um, it seems like the problem comes when people look to prophecy as an authority, or looks looks to prophecy as as a as a guidance, you know, or a sole way of guidance, uh, and that you know that that they don't turn to the Word of God to discover God's will. For the church, not recognizing that prophecy is is not primarily for guidance. It's you know, according to First Corinthians fourteen, it's for strengthening and encouragement and comfort and and it's it's the doctrine that's from Scripture that's taught by uh, by elders. That's the primary source of of guidance, not prophetic words. Absolutely, absolutely, I agree with you. Now, let me ask you a question, Sam. You know, there are certain incidents. Um, when somebody like uh, you know Spurgeon, for instance, had strong impressions while preaching, you know, I think of the story of Spurgeon pointing to the man and saying he was a shoemaker who remained open on the Sabbath and made a certain profit, and and basically called out his greed. Is that prophecy? <laughs> well, sure sounds like it to me. Um, it's interesting that uh, you know Spurgeon himself would never have called it that. Because most likely Spurgeon was yeah. a cessationist, and yet his experience um, was otherwise. It looks as if God um, utilized him to minister in that way, even though it may have been. Um, although he, I don't think he viewed it as inconsistent with his theology. I think maybe some cessationists today would think it is. 
but yeah, here's the problem. As you know, um, word of knowledge and word of wisdom are only mentioned one time in the Bible. That's 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, and Paul never defines them. Uh, I think we can come up with a definition, but uh, it, it may feel a little bit arbitrary. So we have to look at examples in Scripture. So in Acts, where Paul, it says he, he perceived or saw that a man had faith to be healed. And I always ask the question, how did that happen? You know, did, did he see the word faith in his mind? Did, was there some sort of a gift of discernment that gave him confidence that that was the case? But right in the middle of his sermon, you know, he, he gets this sense or this impression and it ends up with the man being healed. So I don't know uh, precisely how that came into Spurgeon's heart or mind, but he, he mentions in his, uh, his autobiography that it happened a, a dozen or more times in the course of preaching. Um, so whether we call it prophecy, whether we call it word of knowledge, um, discerning of spirits, um, I'm not really concerned. Uh, you know, the New Testament doesn't seem overly burdened to define these gifts other than it, I th do think it defines prophecy, but it doesn't define the others. And so I think we have to look at biblical examples and say, well, that seems to meet the criteria. Maybe we ought to call it that. Should a guy that's listening to the podcast who aspires to preach expect that that's going to be his experience as he grows as a preacher? Well, I think we have to unpack that word expect. Um, I, I don't know that I have had that kind of experience in my 41 years of preaching. Now I've had, I've had people come up afterwards and say, you know, when you went off on that tangent and you just kind of went down that bunny trail and you mentioned that particular biblical text, or you, uh, told that story, it was like you were reading my mail because that's the very issue that I was addressing as the very passage of scripture I'd been studying, uh, and so, you know, I say, well, what was that? Was that just the spirit of God providentially guiding and directing my thoughts and words? It may have been. It may have been a spiritual gift. Um, but I, I must confess, I don't get up on Sundays and expect that to happen. But I do pray in advance, Lord, if this would be beneficial to your people and honoring to you, make it happen and just make me sensitive to the work of the spirit so that I won't quench it or um, uh, withdraw in fear from it. But again, the word expect might be a little bit too intense in that sense. I certainly think, um, uh, you know, anticipation maybe is a little bit lighter of a term. Um, so, yeah, you know, as I think about the, you know, the role of prophecy as I, even thinking about this illustration of what took place with, with Spurgeon or, or even what happens when the gifts are being used in the gathered church. It seems like one of the things that's happening is that uh, is is a sense that that God is here, God is now, God is among us. I, you know, I think about Fee's book, God's empowering presence, and how he he defines the Holy Spirit as as the personal presence of God Himself, and and that it's it seems like there's a sense where the role of the Holy Spirit is to provide a kind of existential experience of God. God is among us, the first Corinthians 14 thing. God is, God is here. And, uh, you know, is that what you think believer, one of the important features to being a continuationist that believers should anticipate, Sam? 
Yes, I do. I do. And uh, it might be helpful to differentiate um, for our listeners between what, uh, what I and others call God's omnipresence versus God's manifest presence. God's omnipresence is a fact. It's just a, an inescapable element in God's character. He is everywhere present. He's always with us, no matter where we may be, whether we're preaching or playing golf, sleeping or driving a car. But we see all through scripture when God tend, uh, works in such a way that he manifests or puts on display that presence in an extraordinary way. Um, you know, I think, for example, of, um, of Ephesians 3, everybody knows the prayer that Paul prayed. That It's interesting that he's praying for Christians, and he says, and I pray that Christ, through faith, might dwell in your hearts. Well, if we're born again, he's already dwelling in our hearts. He's there. So what is Paul praying for? Well, I think he's praying for what I would call an experiential enlargement of the awareness of God's presence, that we sense that he is near, S similar to the way that I sensed it that night when I was 10 years old and, 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 and really had that call into full-time ministry. So sometimes uh, there's a sense in which God pulls back the veil, so to speak, between heaven and earth, and the God who is always present is felt and sensed um, in, in extraordinarily powerful ways. I, I think this is... Uh, you know, the, when the heart is tenderized to be um, um, cognizant of that presence, maybe even, uh, you know, in times of revival. Um, I was actually reading the, about the experience of Sarah Edwards, uh, Jonathan Edwards' wife, again, earlier today. And we were talking about it in our staff meeting. And uh, just to read of how she was so awakened and alerted to and impressed by these biblical truths concerning the, the greatness of Christ and her salvation in him. That's the kind of presence that I think we should expect and pray for and, and prepare our people to receive and to experience. Now, that doesn't mean that we're setting them up to be constantly dependent upon it as if, you know, you come to church on a Sunday and it feels kind of routine and you didn't have goosebumps and you didn't sense anything extraordinary and you walk out and say, well, guess God was absent today. He didn't show up. What a waste of time. No, no, we don't believe that. Of course, God was present. Of course, he ministers even when we don't have any kind of sense or, or tangible awareness of it. Uh, but, you know, you read in 1 Peter 1, 8 that uh, even though we don't see Christ, we uh, we love him and we believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And I think that's a normative experience for God's people, even when they might not um, have some tangible or physiological feeling that God is uniquely powerful or present on that particular occasion. But God does want to give people experiences with his His power. That's why he, he commands us to uh, to to be filled with the Spirit of God in Ephesians five, and that believers shouldn't withdraw from that or be afraid of that, but that, absolutely. But we should be crying out for that and anticipating that God will answer that prayer, desiring that. Yeah, I mean, for example, uh, we have a corporate prayer meeting every Wednesday morning at seven from seven to eight, and this morning the Lord, I felt like the Lord led me to Acts chapter four. 
and where Peter is given an explanation for how that man was, uh, who was paralyzed was healed. And it says that, and being filled with the Holy Spirit, he spoke and he declared to them who Christ was. And I, I just prayed on behalf of myself and others, Lord, we need that, that um, energizing presence of your spirit. We need you to move in the same way as you did in Peter in us so that we would have a, a boldness and a courage and a renewed confidence in the centrality and supremacy of Christ. So, yes, I think that that infilling of the Spirit is absolutely crucial. Now, Sam, let me freeze the frame on that experience you had this morning and and just ask, how would you distinguish between um, feelings that you might have in that moment and a, a legitimate prompting or, uh, or or nudge from the Spirit of God? Well, uh, it's not easy. And again, I think uh, here is one of the reasons why so many people are afraid of moving in this direction because they say, before I do it, I need an absolute guarantee in advance that when I ask for this from God, that I will only get God and it won't just be my feelings or my emotions. And the simple fact of the matter is, if you uh, put that condition upon your openness to the movement of the spirit, nothing's ever going to happen. Um, because that kind of um, absolute certitude, that that objective clarity doesn't always exist. In fact, it rarely does. So if you, like you just asked me, all right, Sam, how did you know that um, that what you were sensing from the Lord in the, in the reading of that text and the and, you know, the uh, urging that upon the people and turning that back into prayer to God. How did you know that was from the Holy Spirit? And my answer to you is, well, I don't have absolute certitude that it was. But that doesn't stop me. That doesn't bother me in the least. There's a lot of things. There's very few things, in fact, I have absolute certitude about. But I know that what I saw in the text was consistent with its meaning. Um, I'd seen God do it before. I'd had similar experiences against which I could measure it. Uh, the people felt it was fruitful and they responded in a, in a Christ exalting way. So, you know, I, I put all those factors together and I say, Lord, I trust that was from you. If it wasn't, uh, I know God's not offended. God's not embarrassed or upset with me. I said, if God, if, if that wasn't you, then, then instruct me and, and, and show me a better way. And, and let me see how I can be more discerning. But, you know, if we put that condition of absolute certitude and I've got to have an objective, unbreakable guarantee in advance that it's always going to be God, well, just forget about it because uh, that doesn't exist. And if you make that a condition of being open to the Spirit, then you'll remain forever closed. Sam, let me let me pose this question to you. In fact, this will be our our final question, but I think in some ways it's it's one of the more important ones we'll talk about today. Um, just imagine for a second that you're sitting in your office and sitting across from you is either a a church planter or a pastor, and they're saying to you, "I want to take the steps necessary to build this value into my church. I, I want our church to be a church of." continuationist, but I have no idea what to do. How would you advise them? Well, I was in something of that situation myself in 1988. I can still remember it when um, I I read a couple of books that 
awakened me to this. My theology began to shift. And um, I didn't have anybody really there to instruct me or guide me. I, I hope I did it correctly. Uh, the fruit of it was very profitable in that local church. But what I would say to a church planner or a pastor is uh, commit yourself to regular instruction of your people and of your own soul in this. So, for example, um, I said, all right, we're gonna, I'm going to preach through the book of Acts. We're just going to go verse by verse through the book of Acts. And we did it. Um, we began to, you know, this was back during the time when the so-called worship wars were just erupting. And uh, we devoted uh, an extraordinary amount of time to praise and to, to quieting ourselves before the Lord. And um, I preached on worship for 12 weeks. Uh, I preached on spiritual warfare for 22 weeks. I preached through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the only thing I preached. I don't want people to think that that's some sort of a hobby horse you have to ride in order to make this happen. But I said, look, folks, we're not going to do in our church anything that is not clearly um, endorsed and approved by the word of God. What we're doing is scripturally governed. And so you need to just put your fears to rest that somehow we're going to spin out of control. We're not going to let that happen. And then I think, you know, I would say to that church planter or that young pastor that prayer is probably key. I think you need to train your people. Don't assume that people know how to pray. Don't assume they know how to pray for the sick. Um, create um, contexts, for example, in small groups where people feel safe. You know, I, I don't recommend that all this is done on a Sunday morning corporate worship gathering, but in small groups where where you can have time and people know one another and uh, you feel much more freedom to step out in faith to, to say, well, here's what the Lord has laid on my heart or let's put, you know, Janie in the middle of the room in a chair. Let's lay hands on her and pray that she be healed of this arthritic knee or whatever it is she's suffering from. Um, so those are just some of the things that, that I would say because they were pretty much the things that I did uh, many years ago when the Lord first awakened me to this truth. And one of the points to draw out of uh, Sam's story for our, our listeners is is the fact that he didn't feel certain, but uh, but he was willing to take the step, and he recognized the importance of his own example. So, you know, you're out there, you're listening, and you, you feel like you have a, a theology, but you don't have a practice, and you're wondering how to see this transferred to the local church. Well, I mean, follow Sam's example, just... Just begin to wade in, begin to pray for people, take initiative, pursue, make mistakes, and trust God. Sam, this wraps up today's program, and I just want to say, man, I am, I am very grateful to God for your work in bringing solid scholarship to charismatic thinking, which I think really provides those of us that are continuationists biblical grounding for not only our doctrine but our practice. So, so thank you, Sam. Well, it's my pleasure, and I uh, I just feel honored that you would have me on, and I just uh, enjoyed the time. Hopefully, we can do it again. Folks, if you're looking to read more or listen to more material on these topics, uh, check out Sam's website first at samstorms.com. Uh, he also does a blog called Enjoying God that you should check out. And you can also jump over to the amicall.com site where you're going to find all kinds of free stuff, a, a great assessment tool that you can take and and some terrific podcasts with Paul Tripp and David Pallison and 
the B.D. Anyabwile and just a host of other folks as well. So uh, speaking of hosts, this is your host, Dave Harvey, and thanks for joining us today at the Am I Called podcast. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Am I Called podcast, which was brought to you today by Four Oaks Community Church in Tallahassee, Florida. For more articles, interviews, and resources on calling and pastoral ministry, visit amicalled.com.